Let's get started. I'm going to run over today. I know. Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for uh, being gracious and merciful to us. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And just pray that today you would grow our understanding, uh, our knowledge. Pray that you would apply that to our hearts to transform us and to equip us for greater service. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to do this morning is... uh, clean up some of the misunderstanding that I may have contributed to last week when I was trying to answer some questions on the passages in 1 Corinthians 14. So the context of that chapter is that the Corinthian church was full of problems. They were worldly, there was sexual immorality, there were issues of pride and abuse uh, in the practice of certain spiritual gifts. Tongues apparently was particularly abused, which is why there are several chapters devoted to addressing this gift as well as prophecy. But tongues, <clears throat> tongues is by far the more uh, problematic. So Paul's addressing the way the gift was being used and abused, and he gives guidelines for its proper and beneficial use. Well, first of all, the language found in 1 Corinthians and in Acts, referring to tongues, are the same, it's the same language. And that would indicate that just as in Acts, 1 Corinthians, the gift of tongues is the same, okay? Speaking in known languages, not ecstatic utterances. It was language that could be understood by someone who spoke that language, or it could be interpreted into the native language of the church so that everyone could know what was being said and thus edified. Grammatically, there's no good reason to think that there's any difference at all between the tongues manifested in Acts and what was being addressed in 1 Corinthians. Now, going back to chapter 12, verse 7 in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that the gifts are given by the Spirit for the common good. In other words, Spiritual gifts are given for the benefit of the corporate church, for the benefit of the body of Christ. Gifts are not given for personal benefit or for personal edification of the individual believer, although certainly they would benefit within the corporate body. They are to be used for building up the church as a whole. And Paul makes this point again in 1426. What then, that's chapter and verse, not year. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So the gifts are to be used when you come together. When the church is assembled, they are for building up. In other words, they are for strengthening, for growing, for edifying the church as a whole. And the problem is in Corinth, this gift of tongues was not being used in this way. They were not using the gift um, in order to edify the church. They were exercising the gift without anybody interpreting what they were saying. So whatever was being said, it wasn't benefiting the church at all. He makes the point in 14.5, comparing the superiority of prophecy 
to tongues. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So when there's interpretation, it's almost as though tongues and prophecy are uh, almost on the same level. Paul doesn't forbid the use of tongues, but he makes the point that if there is no one to interpret the speaking in tongues, then speaking in tongues is basically useless to the church for building it up, which is what is intended for. And then he goes on to develop that point further in verses 6 through 12, and uh, this is um, my take on that. You Corinthians, if you're speaking in tongues without interpretation, you're certainly not building up the church. All you're doing is mouthing unintelligible noise into the air, and that's useless. Now, some may argue that verses 2, 4, 14, and 28 seem to commend speaking in tongues privately, or that there is some personal benefit or actual personal edification going on. But most commentators disagree with that understanding based on the overall context of chapter 14. So verse 2 says, and this is chapter 14, verse 2, for the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, this is the NASB uh, translation, which is a more literal translation of the Greek. The ESV has that last part of the verse as in the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, but that is probably not the best translation of the word pneuma in this context. The NASB, as in his Spirit, is more accurate, referring to the Spirit of the individual believer. <clears throat> the point that Paul is making here is that speaking <clears throat> in an uninterpreted tongue doesn't benefit the church since nobody can understand what's being said. The only one who can understand is God because God is omniscient. He understands all things. He knows all things. So he speaks, the individual believer speaks mysteries in his spirit, and spirit being synonymous with the heart or the seat of emotion, will, and intellect. It's what makes a person who they are. He speaks mysteries because it's a mystery as to what the individual is saying when this tongue is uninterpreted, it's unintelligible. It's a mystery to everyone but God. It's even a mystery to the one who is speaking unless he also has the gift of interpretation. And then in verse 4, Paul says, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, <clears throat> this is by no means a commendation of speaking in tongues as a means for self-edification. Paul isn't saying, this is a good thing, you're edifying yourself. It's actually a negative pronouncement on the individual who is speaking in this uninterpreted tongue. Gifts are for the edification of the gathered church, not for self-edification. So if that's what you're doing, you're not using the gift the way it was intended to be used. Now, some commentators see this, this particular verse, as an example of Paul using sarcasm 
to make a point. Oh, you're speaking in an uninterpreted tongue? Well, that's just great. You're being edified, but no one else is. And also maybe sarcasm because later in verse 14, Paul says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. So you're praying in a tongue, but it's not even doing you any good because you don't understand what you're saying. Speaking in an uninterpreted, unintelligible tongue not only doesn't benefit the church, it really doesn't benefit the speaker either. That's why Paul says in verse 13, if you do have the gift of tongues, you should pray for the gift of interpretation so that speaking in tongues can benefit the church and it can benefit the individual as well. All right, now jumping ahead to verse 28, Paul says, but if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in the church and have him speak to himself and to God. So there's nobody to interpret, then don't say anything. Keep silent. You can't use the gift the way it was intended to be used, so just meditate and pray silently. And this does not even necessarily mean pray in tongues silently. Just pray silently. And the assumption is that you'll pray in your own native language so that there is benefit. And as Paul mentioned before in verse 14, there is no benefit even if the speaker, um, to, for the speaker to speak or pray in an uninterpreted tongue. So pray and speak silently. If they can't understand what they're saying, there's no one else to interpret. Their mind, their understanding is unfruitful. There's no benefit even to the speaker. Now, what you also see is that the use of the the gift was able to be controlled. Believers could choose to exercise it or to keep quiet, and that's obvious in in verse 28 of chapter 14. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So this is not how you see many Pentecostal and charismatic displays of the so-called gift of tongues. In fact, it is I, I went to a church like this back in the 80s. It's often characterized by tongue speaking chaos. Everyone is speaking at once. Nobody's waiting their turn. It's definitely not only two and at the most three people speaking in tongues, and no one is interpreting. And I would imagine that the reason no one is interpreting is because the fact is no one is actually speaking with the actual gift of tongues. It's just gibberish. Okay? Now, another problem And this is a fairly significant problem. Maybe it may be, in fact, the most important problem that Paul is addressing in the text of chapters 12 through 14, and it's that this gift was being used in a way that demonstrated a lack of love, may have been exercised in a way that, in fact, displayed spiritual pride. Yeah, I've got the gift of tongues, just like the apostles did at Pentecost, but you don't? Oh, you poor thing. Now, that is likely the reason for the emphasis on the superiority 
of love over both tongues and prophecy. Tongues will cease. Prophecy and knowledge will pass away, but love will never end. That's chapter 13, verse 8. It's really pretty amazing uh, when you think about it that the one place, the one place in all of Scripture that Paul or anybody else speaks about or gives instructions on the use of the gift of tongues in the only letter to the only church, which is Corinth, as Paul gives these instructions on the use of tongues, he makes a point that there's actually a better way, a better thing to be desired, something far more significant and enduring than any of these miraculous gifts. Chapter 13, 29 through 31, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And that more excellent way is love, which he develops in chapter 13. In other words, what the believer should desire and seek after, what is more important than any gifting by the Holy Spirit, not the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, or I would say not even the normal gifts that have continued to this day and certainly benefit the church. Those are all well and good, and they serve God's sovereign purposes, but much more important. Much more important is that every believer, regardless of the gifts that you have been given by the Holy Spirit, is that every believer grows in the fruit of the Spirit, sorry, and that we grow in love. The first of the fruits named in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is what is manifested by those who are filled with the Spirit, who are walking in the Spirit, who are keeping in step with the Spirit and being transformed into Christ-likeness by the Spirit. Christ-likeness is manifested by love. Christ was the embodiment of love. And as far as we know from the biblical record, Jesus never spoke in tongues, but he laid down his life for us because he loved us. And we're to follow the example of Christ. We're to be like God because we are his people. We are his children, and God is love. So we are to be characterized by love. How will they know that we are Christians, that we are the disciples of Christ, not by our ability to speak in tongues or interpret or prophesy or work miracles? How will they know that we are Christians? It's by our love, John 13, 35. Love for God, love for the body of Christ, love for one another, and love for the lost. Tongues served its purpose in the first century church, but even then, even then, 
the fruit of the Spirit was more important. Love was to be more sought after than any of the gifts. And that certainly should be the case today. Enough about tongues. Okay? We're going to move on and wrap up this series with a few of the works of the Holy Spirit that have yet to be addressed. The first of these is illumination. And God's creation, so if you want to talk to me about tongues, we'll, we'll do that afterwards, okay? Come and talk to me about any issues that you have or questions. And the same for anything that's been covered in the past uh, 10 weeks. <clears throat> okay, illumination. In God's creation and providence, there are two forms of revelation, general and special revelation. General revelation is all that can be known about God as it's revealed in his physical creation. That's what Paul is referring to in Romans 1, 19 through 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is general revelation. Then it goes on to speak about the fact that man, because of sin and his rejection of God, has become spiritually blind. He can no longer see what's clearly revealed about God in creation. Special revelation... Special revelation is essentially all that has been revealed about God, his will, and his purposes in Scripture, including the revelation of Christ in the gospel. That's special revelation. And the problem is that because of the fall, because of sin, man's ability to perceive and understand what has been clearly revealed has been darkened. Man has become spiritually blinded not just a general revelation, but certainly to what's revealed in the Word. And you see this illustrated in Acts 16, 14, with Lydia. <clears throat> it's implied that before the Lord opened her heart, she was unable to understand. She was unable to perceive the truth. She was unable to respond to the gospel. Her heart was darkened in the way that Paul refers to uh, with the Ephesians in Ephesians four eighteen. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. She was spirit, Lydia was spiritually blind, but when the Lord opened her heart, she was able to understand and respond to the gospel. And this spiritual blindness is what Paul is referring to when he speaks about the veil over the hearts of the unbelieving Jews in 2 Corinthians 3.15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So they can't understand and respond. And Paul speaks most clearly about this spiritual blindness in 1 Corinthians 1.10, passage you should all be familiar with. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, And then chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things 
of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, in other words, the man or woman who is still dead in sin, unregenerate, not yet born again, still continuing in unbelief, is unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. That is, all that's revealed in creation and in the Scriptures, including the Gospel. It's impossible for them to understand and respond. And the only remedy for man's spiritual blindness, his darkened heart, the veil over his heart that is making it impossible for him for you or for I when we were in unbelief to understand, to receive the truths of the gospel and respond in repentance and faith, the only remedy is we must have our spiritual blindness removed, have our dead hearts brought to life so that we can see, so we can perceive, so we can understand, so we can respond to both general and special revelation in the word of God. And that is solely a work of God that takes place in conjunction with regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the gift of faith. Paul states this in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. <clears throat> now, we have now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, the, those who are born again, essentially. So it's the Holy Spirit that <clears throat> illuminates the darkened heart, that gives sight to the spiritually blind. And this begins at regeneration and indwelling, and that sight and understanding grows over time along with sanctification. And this is implied or clearly stated in a number of passages. David, King David, refers to this ongoing need for the believer's growth in spiritual sight and understanding. In Psalm 119.8, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And in the prayers of Paul for believers, such as in Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is a prayer for believers, not unbelievers. It's a prayer that they will grow in knowledge and understanding through the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> That's what the spirit of wisdom is referring to, referring to the Holy Spirit. Now also, John is speaking about this growth <clears throat> and enlightenment and knowledge through the work of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 2.20 and 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And then verse 27, 
But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So, a couple things to remember regarding enlightenment or illumination of the Spirit. Prior to regeneration and indwelling, man is spiritually blind, unable to understand and respond to general or special revelation. We're unable to understand and respond to the gospel. When the Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells, the new believer is given spiritual sight. The veil is removed. The darkened heart is enlightened, and we are now able to understand. We are now able to see the revelation of God in creation and the truths revealed in Scripture. We're able to understand and respond to the gospel. We're able to see the glories of God that have always been there, but beyond our spiritually blind ability to see or understand. We also continue to grow in enlightenment and understanding and true spiritual knowledge as we grow in sanctification. And just as Paul prayed for this growth in understanding and enlightenment for the churches, we should be praying the same thing. We should pray that the Holy Spirit will grow our enlightenment, our understanding, our true spiritual knowledge, and we should be praying that for one another. We should be praying that for the church. Just as David prayed, open my eyes, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, that we may behold wondrous things in your word. Now, one final point regarding the Spirit's illumination. We need to remember that this is a necessary work of the Spirit for any unbeliever to understand and respond to the gospel. So don't be discouraged. If people don't repent and believe in Christ as they should when you share the gospel, your job is to clearly share the truth of man's lost state and the hope of salvation, justification, reconciliation with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But they can only, they will only respond when the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, gives them spiritual sight through regeneration, indwelling, and enlightenment. You have no control over that miraculous work of the Spirit in the unbeliever's heart. Your job, share the gospel. Holy Spirit saves. Now, let's talk about the Spirit's guidance. And this is an area where there is considerable misunderstanding. And if I get this finished up in time, I want to share a story with you um, that illustrates the danger. Anyway, great propensity for error in um, our understanding of the Spirit's guidance. So how does the Holy Spirit guide the believer in knowing God's will, knowing what we should do, knowing how to live our lives, knowing which way to go or which way not to go, knowing what to choose or what not to choose. There are certainly numerous well-intentioned but unbiblical ways of discerning the Holy Spirit's guidance, but the primary 
biblical means of guidance are through Scripture and providence. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. It's where God's moral will is found. The Scriptures contain all that God has given us in the way of directions and instructions, commands, prohibitions regarding moral decisions, thoughts, and actions. The Word is where we determine how God wants us to live and worship. And the other primary means of guidance is through providence. This is God's sovereign determining, directing, controlling of every detail of daily life so that we are necessarily moved in the direction God would have us move and we necessarily do what he would have us do. We make plans and decisions, but God ultimately determines through divine providence the course of our lives. It's Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Lamentations 3, 37. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And that includes in the lives of everyone on the face of this earth. Now, some of the unbiblical ways that we may seek guidance is sitting in silence, waiting to hear God speak to us through impressions or a still small voice, which is misunderstood to be an impression or a feeling. And this tends to be attributed to a couple of passages that are taken out of context and misapplied, particularly 1 Kings 19, 11 through 15. You can go back and look at that. With listening for the spirit or deciphering impressions, there is often ambiguity or uncertainty as to whether it was actually the Spirit speaking or our personal desires entering in or just too much hot sauce on the burrito we had for dinner. One thing that is fairly clear is that in Scripture, the few times, and it's only a few times, the few times that the Spirit spoke directly to people, there was absolutely no doubt that it was the Holy Spirit speaking. And there was no doubt as to what he was directing those individuals to do. And a couple of examples are 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. The Spirit expressly says, that's pretty clear. Or Acts 8.29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. There's no ambiguity there. In Acts 13.2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Again, these are explicit audible directions from the Holy Spirit. Now, what we have to remember is that these instances of the Holy Spirit speaking directly to people in Scripture are extremely rare. They are not the norm. 
And it's not how we should expect the Holy Spirit's guidance today. Listening for a still, small voice in the form of impressions can also be very unreliable for a few reasons that I've also mentioned. And if you're waiting for a reliable impression or an audible voice, you will probably be waiting for a long time. But if you want to hear the Spirit speak, read the Bible. You want to hear the Spirit speak audibly? Well, then read it out loud. Now, in regards to uh, discerning the Spirit's guidance through providence, I want to say that that can also be uncertain. For example, just because the Lord seems to have brought about circumstances that make moving in a particular direction more difficult, that does not mean that the door is closed in the contemporary language. It may just be a temporary delay or a trial to grow your perseverance or your faith. And a so-called open door is not necessarily an indication that you are to move in that direction. Maybe, but not necessarily. So I didn't include this, but another thing that you should never do, and, and again, this is contemporary language, is put a fleece out, referring to Gideon's interaction with the Lord, The Lord already told him what he was supposed to do. And the Lord already told him what he was going to do. But Gideon didn't believe it. And so he keeps putting out these fleeces and, you know, asking the Lord to do this and do that. And God accommodated that. But that's not how we're to operate, okay? That is not a biblical um, recommendation or prescription, okay? Don't put out fleeces. And I'm going to wrap this up real quick here. Then I'm going to share a story with you that illustrates why that is so dangerous. So, I'm going to give you four basic principles or methods for biblical Holy Spirit guidance and Spirit-led decision-making. Number one, saturate yourself in the Word. Know what the Holy Spirit has revealed, what He has already said in Scripture regarding the moral or wisdom implications of whatever decision you're trying to make or whatever you're trying to determine is or isn't God's will in a particular situation. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So if Scripture forbids it, then that option is off the table, and it's clearly not God's will. Should you marry Susie or Ashley? Well, Susie is an unbeliever and Ashley is a believer, so biblically, Susie is not an option in deciding who to marry. That doesn't mean you should marry Ashley, but you definitely can't marry Susie. Knowing what God has revealed regarding his moral will and his guidelines for wise living will grow you in biblical wisdom and further conform your thinking, your thought processes, to God's way of thinking and developing the mind of Christ. So know what the Word says. Number two, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. Ask the Holy Spirit for guidance, for clarity in your thinking, in your decision-making process. This is something we are commanded to do, so we should definitely be obedient and do it. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
So if we're not praying for wisdom and guidance, we're neglecting a promise that God has made regarding his help and a powerful resource for guidance. Number three, seek counsel from wise and godly believers. Don't try to be a lone ranger. Don't think you've got it all figured out. There may be something that a more mature, knowledgeable, and experienced believer may have insight into that you don't. There's safety in wise counsel and a multitude of counselors, not just your buddy. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, many, they succeed. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Number four, finally, after you have saturated yourself in the word, after you have prayed, after you have sought counsel, right, number four, do something. Make a decision and trust in God's sovereign providence. Trust in the truth that ultimately he's in control. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, <clears throat> to those who are called according to his purpose. In Proverbs 16, 9, again, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In Philippians 1, 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Know what the word says, pray for wisdom, seek counsel, and make a decision trusting in the Holy Spirit's guidance and God's sovereign control over every detail of your life. And I will point out, I don't want to say that God doesn't care about those daily decisions like where you should work, what job you should take, who you should marry, uh, whether you should vacation uh, at Cayucas <clears throat> or Paris or what you should buy for your living room in the way of furniture. It's not that God doesn't care about those things, but ultimately the thing that God cares about the most is your growth in holiness, your growth in Christ-likeness, you walking in obedience to everything that Christ has commanded, and you do that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So remember that as you make decisions. <clears throat> I want to share a story, um, and my wife and I both are, are familiar with this story. So this goes to uh, putting out fleeces, okay, and why that it is a, essentially it's a, an unbiblical uh, way of decision making, and it will lead, often lead to uh, dangerous and tragic consequences. <laughs> So we had a friend <clears throat> back in our charismatic uh, Calvary Chapel days. Uh, this woman was uh, trying to decide whether or not she should marry a particular man who had asked, um, asked her to marry him. And she had gone, I think it was to Arizona, to visit her mom or a relative and talked it over with her mom. I don't remember what her mom's counsel was. 
But on her drive back to California, <clears throat> she put out a fleece. <clears throat> and she saw up ahead uh, a whole bunch of blackbirds sitting on a telephone line, um, like, you know, a quarter mile up ahead. And very quickly, she prayed. She says, Lord, if you don't want me to marry this man, if you don't want me to marry this man, then have those birds fly away when I drive by. So she drove by the birds, and they remained seated on the telephone lines. So she went home and said, yes, I'll marry you. Because obviously the Lord had given her a sign. Those birds didn't fly away, so God wanted her to marry him. And I think it was one year, one or two years after they got married, they were divorced. And he proved to be an unbeliever. So don't put fleeces out. Don't tempt God. Don't put God to the test. Okay? Just be obedient. Use biblical means for decision-making. All right? Time's up. I hope you um, were encouraged and informed over the last 10 weeks, have grown in your knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And if you have any questions, fortunately, we don't have time for that right now. So if you want to <laughs> talk to me afterwards, I'd be happy to discuss anything with you that you are still um, not sure about. All right? You're dismissed.